Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of Engendered, our guest is Dawn Elizabeth Wilcox, a domestic violence survivor, activist, and educator. Dawn has been working as a registered nurse for over 23 years and runs Women Count USA, a national database that compiles data on femicides in the United States. Dawn began this project in 2017 out of her home in Plano, Texas, and has collected more than 2,500 names over the past two years. Our conversation with Dawn will cover the urgency of femicide and violence against women as not only a national crisis, but an international one, and the ways in which the criminal justice, health care, and social welfare systems in our country continue to fail survivors of intimate partner violence and their children and communities. Dawn will also share with us her thoughts for how her work can be used to inform changes in the ways in which the media and law enforcement can better respond to intimate partner violence in our country. All right. Welcome, Dawn. Hi, Terry. Thank you for joining us and uh, sharing this important work that you've been doing for the past two years. Well, thank you for reaching out to me and your interest in this subject. I love your podcast and I'm really honored to be included. Thank you. Well, let's start with Women Count USA. Can you tell our listeners what is it and how did you come to create this database? Sure. So Women Count USA is a femicide census that I put together um, for the United States beginning in about early 2017. And of course, femicide is an issue that's a worldwide problem. But, you know, being realistic and looking at sheer numbers, I knew I had to concentrate on the United States due to language barriers. You know, I can't read Italian newspapers and things like that. And um, because I had to kind of limit my focus and I called it Women Count USA because there's another group called Women Count, which was what I originally wanted to call it. And uh, they do voting advocacy for women. So um, I'm not really what I would consider a nationalist. (laughs) I care about women the world over, but I decided to call it Women Count USA to kind of um, a play on words, you know, Women Count. And um, at the same time, I am actually counting murdered women and girls in the United States, specifically uh, women and girls who have been murdered by men. So you use the word femicide. Can you define what it is in the way that you're using it? So femicide is when uh, women are killed uh, chiefly because they are women. And I consider women being sought out as, for lack of a better term, prey by whether it's like strangers and serial killers who are committing what we call maybe sexual homicides or women who are, by virtue of their supposed second-class citizenship, have certain expectations in the ways that they're supposed to act, the roles that they're supposed to fill, and when they, quote-unquote, fall fall short of... uh, accommodating men in those ways, men feel justified in killing them. 
technically it's a term where women are killed simply because they're women. But my argument is that they are also killed when they do not um, choose to either adhere to societal roles or they exercise autonomy. I routinely see women killed because of uh, things like, you know, wanting to leave a relationship, not wanting to uh, be in a relationship, saying no to a date. Uh, There are women on my list who were killed because the man said they didn't like the way they dressed, that they were disrespectful to his parents. There's even a woman on my 2018 list who was killed by a stranger because she refused to let him use her cell phone. And I've actually come up with a term, um, I coined the term corrective femicide, which is sort of um, similar to corrective rape. And that, to me, um, covers the myriad reasons that men give for killing women. I really found this was so frequent that I felt like I really needed to come up with a term to describe what I was seeing. And it's uh, striking to me that the U.S. doesn't actually track femicide specifically uh, because it falls under total murders or homicides. And so they may, I'm not sure what the parameters are, they may divide it then by gender and female versus male homicides. And I've, you know, in my research and preparation for this conversation, it's come across many, many articles that the word femicide is actually something that within the U.S. at least, there's a reluctance to use. Do you, yeah. what, do you what do you feel about that? And can you shed some light on the reasons behind that? Yeah, I think, um, it, you know, it's reflective of an overall failure of um, the United States and the world at large to recognize that we've got a real serious problem with violence against women and girls and uh, targeted violence against women and girls by men. You know, it's even kind of frowned upon to use the term male violence against women and girls. But I think in order to tackle any problem, we have to be able to name it. We have to be able to know how big it is. And that's a prime reason why I started to count and document as many women and girls as I could find who were murdered by men in the United States. When I went to national databases like the Department of Justice, uh, the FBI, I found that the, the problems were, one, that it was just sort of uh, statistics. It didn't really tell a story about what sort of relationships the women had to these men. You know, there are some uh statistics that I'll talk about, like three women are killed by current partners. Um, and I felt like that really left out a large portion of women who are actually killed after they leave. Uh, we frequently will say, why doesn't she just leave? And the fact is many women do, and they're often murdered when they do. So I found it problematic to not be able to really find good data. Uh, something that I found out through doing this work too, is that police departments are actually required to report their homicides to the federal level, but there don't seem to be consequences when they fail to adhere to those uh, those laws. So, for instance, Florida, from my understanding, has not reported homicides to the national level since the 1990s um, when it, as pertains to domestic violence homicides. So this is a real problem because, again, you know, I'm a nurse and it's it's a profession that's based in science 
And while I'm not a, uh, you know, graduate level statistician or researcher, nurses are trained in research and statistics to be able to look at medical studies and look at a sample size and look at, you know, how the study was conducted and determine whether or not the findings of that study are valid and should be incorporated into their nursing practice. So I do have that kind of background in the sense that, you know, nurses are trained in research and statistics to be able to look at a, um, you know, like a study and look at the sample size and look at, you know, how the study was conducted and make determinations about whether or not the outcome uh, was valid so we can determine whether or not we should incorporate those findings into our nursing practice. So nurses do have some training in research and statistics, even though we are not graduate level researchers and statisticians. And, you know, the other thing is that no one's doing this work. So I am an expert in this work. I have uh, to do what I do, read literally thousands of articles about women who have been killed in the United States uh, by men. Uh, So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's something that unfortunately I feel like we cannot count on the government to do. I look at, you know, Hurricane Maria. I think originally the the U.S. government was reporting there were like 64 people killed total. And we now know those uh, totals were actually in the 2000s. So I think that documenting murdered women is something that absolutely needs to remain on a grassroots level. It's work that needs to be done by people who deeply care about this work and really care about whether or not the count is accurate. I'm interested in finding every single woman I can who was murdered in, for instance, 2018, um, which is what I'm working on currently and want to finish up so I can get one year of a really good snapshot as accurate as possible. And I'll have a starting place to look at how does that compare to what the federal government is saying? How, how far off is it? Is it accurate? Is it not accurate? Because my hypothesis is it is wildly inaccurate. And you actually started this work in response to the outrage that you perceived and observed with regard to how people were responding to animals. Uh, Isn't that right? And and how there was such a discrepancy between responses towards animal death versus human death and female death. Can you speak about that? Yeah. So... Back in uh, 2016, um, you know, Harambe was killed at the Cincinnati Zoo. And uh, before that, you know, Cecil the Lion was killed by the dentist. And I watched the sort of public outrage and uh, marches and petitions that, you know, rarely are ever afforded women who are murdered. And as a matter of fact, at that time, you know, I posted about it. and, And the response I would get from people was something like, I can care about two things at once. You know, I care about animals, but I, you know, I can care about this other thing. And, and what I wrote back was, but you never write about women who are murdered, you know? Um, and that is a a weird phenomenon I've heard about from other people who do this work. I believe it was like Julie Owens, who is a, a domestic violence expert and has an area of specialty in the church and domestic violence. And she told me once, you know, 
people will give money for a wounded puppy faster than they will for a, for a woman who's in the hospital or something like that, you know. And I am an avid animal lover. I've my entire life I've you know helped animals. I've adopted several, and I love animals deeply. But there's a real disconnect when we cannot seem to uh, rally the sort of compassion and empathy and action for women who are really uh, being terrorized in their own homes along with their children on a daily basis in this country as we do when animals are abused. Well, that speaks to, I think, an underlying cultural misogyny that we're all subject to, I guess, and that we're indoctrinated where we can, you know, look towards one species differently than we do our own. Well, I think a, a huge part of it is is that animals are seen as, and they often are, and they are, uh, completely innocent in their own situation and, and circumstances, whereas women are, are often blamed, um, you know, why doesn't she just leave, you know, she must like being mistreated, um, or just frank disbelief, he's a nice guy, I mean, I've never seen him do any of these things, she must be making it up, and so those are all based in a lot of myths about domestic violence on the part of women. Unfortunately, when I see women who seem to blame domestic violence victims and say, well, I would do this and why doesn't she just get out? It's kind of like whistling past the graveyard. So uh, women are, can be very invested in looking at either sexual assault or domestic violence and thinking there's the thing she did that put her at risk. And as long as I don't do that thing, as long as I don't wear that dress or date that guy or do A or B, then I'm safe from domestic violence and sexual assault. And, you know, of course we know that's not true. So unfortunately, I think a lot of the disparity between the empathy and compassion we feel for animals who are abused and women who are abused is based in um, this phenomenon of blaming the victim for their own abuse. Well, having done this work now, as you said, becoming more familiar with these stories and most likely even law enforcement themselves, those who have responded and becoming familiar with the patterns, can you speak to what you've observed in these cases in terms of chronology of events, as well as potentially both the law enforcement and or legal response to these cases, and what kind of patterns you've observed that expose either gaps in the system or opportunities to improve? Sure. So, you know, just to acknowledge first off that there are a lot of very good law enforcement officers and advocates who are doing hard work and emotionally tolling work, uh, trying to help, especially women who are victims of domestic violence. And because of the nature of the fact that women often take like three to seven times to leave, it just kind of depends upon statistics you look at. And because they can often be trauma bonded to their abuser and return for various reasons, things like threats to their life, threats to their family's life, financial insecurity, um, not wanting to break up their family, you know, and, and have their kids be away from the father, even though uh, the father may be mistreating them um, because of religious edicts or social 
customs. You know, there are a lot of reasons that keep women stuck in domestic violence relationships. So it can be very frustrating for police and advocates and family and friends who continually see women return to their abusers, especially if they don't have an understanding of the dynamics of these relationships. So I just want to first off say, you know, thank you to the people who keep trying and who don't give up. Uh, and to the ones who, who are failing women, we need to do better. Uh, there are women on my list who did all the right things. They did go to the police. They did report abuse. They, you know, even told police officers things like, if you don't arrest him, he's going to kill me. Or if he gets out of jail, he's going to kill me. And, and we need to listen to these women because there is no greater expert on the potential lethality of a perpetrator than the woman who's being abused by him. She knows him intricately. You know, a, a typical abused woman is um, very attuned to the, the subtle changes in their partner's mood or um, the inflection of their voice. You know, these are things they have to pay meticulous attention to to stay safe, to kind of gauge his mood, to gauge what might be coming next. So we need to start listening to women when they tell us that they are at risk for being murdered because they're typically right. And um, we need to do better than just handing women a piece of paper and a pat on the head. You know, I've often said that police officers understand that domestic violence calls are among the most uh, dangerous calls that they face. A lot of police officers are shot and killed by men during domestic violence calls or by men with a history of domestic violence. And, you know, I've recently learned that men who have a history of strangulation of strangling their partners actually are at higher risk of killing police officers, which is a very interesting correlation. So, you know, the police officers have the benefit of, you know, training and specialized equipment and bulletproof vests and, and guns and backup. And all of this is at their disposal when they go to answer a domestic violence call. But when they leave and they get in their squad car, you know, there's a 120 pound woman and her children who are being left with, with this abuser. And she doesn't have a bulletproof vest and she doesn't have specialized training and backup. And we need to do better. You know, another thing that in my personal opinion, we need to start doing is, is we need to start prosecuting domestic violence, even if victims are not willing. Um, if we can prosecute murders when Victims can't testify based on injuries and, and, you know, autopsies and evidence at the scene, then we can certainly prosecute domestic violence injuries without, even without the testimony of the victim. So I heard several things that you suggested that could help prevent some of these deaths. Uh, one of them was just listening and believing survivors. So that translates presumably into more orders of protection and more action that can keep the survivor away from the abuser. Is that correct? No, I think what I'm saying is like that, that orders of protection, you know, I don't know that they're uh, very effective in the sense that I've got many women on my list who are documented who were, who had orders of protection. You know, they're basically pieces of paper 
And these guys have shown, you know, they will go to the woman's workplace and kill her right in front of people. They'll go to a children's birthday party. They'll go to her hospital room and shoot her dead in her hospital bed. These are all, you know, to her retirement home and kill her in the room. You know, these are all things that have actually happened. So I feel like we need to do better rather than just giving women a piece of paper. There's a case that was especially heartbreaking on my 2018 list of a woman who was murdered by a former partner. And when they took her body away, they found her protective order folded up inside of her pants pocket. So, you know, while I think that the legal system and the court system getting involved and, you know, admonishing an abuser that they are not to harass women who they've abused in the past because there's a protective order, it needs to be enforced by police. You know, there need to be other remedies concurrently along with protective orders because pieces of paper alone aren't going to do it. I mean, I've read something recently about how they could use more GPS monitoring. That is not my area of expertise. And I do know I have had cases of women who have been killed by men on ankle monitoring who have either been wearing the ankle monitor or have taken it off and and then murdered them. So I think it's a combination of factors that are going to keep women safe, but I think we need to start with listening to them, believing them when they say they're in fear for their lives, responding appropriately and very vigorously to that man's abuse early on. So he gets the message that we're serious about this. You know, when these guys get really light sentences or as was seen recently with a guy who was bonded out by the bail project, he got out and he promptly went and murdered his estranged wife. So he should have been in jail. He had already tried to strangle her once. And um, just based on that alone, we know that when men strangle women, there is an uh, incredible increased chance that they will go on to murder that woman. And unfortunately, because this man was bailed out and because strangulation is not treated as a serious crime, it's sometimes a misdemeanor in some states and not a felony. Uh, And it needs to be attempted murder because that's what it is. And it needs to be charged as such. And men need to be put in jail and they need to stay there. Because a lot of times when they are given the opportunity to get out, they go straight to that uh, woman and, and either assault her again or murder her. You've spoken about greater accountability just now and some policy and practice changes that we could consider. Have you heard about how, at least in New York City, but I'm sure across um, the country, there are different uh, municipalities that are testing less accountability and a retreat from criminalization. Have you heard about that? I have. As a matter of fact, I have a book that is on my list to read that I ordered about um, decriminalizing domestic violence. I think it's a horrible idea. Okay. I'm great. I'm so happy that you brought that up because I read the book and we can discuss it afterwards. But uh, there's in New York City, uh, in response to the racial disparities that have resulted from mass incarceration over the past several decades. They are piloting programs that are under the guise of addressing survivor needs and survivor agency. And they're using survivors who want to quote unquote, stay with their abuser and or possibly co-parent with their abuser 
as test cases for potentially having counseling or therapy with their abuser and helping their abuser not abuse by, for example, knowing that there are higher rates of domestic violence incidents correlated with unemployment. They're piloting programs to actually provide economic resources and or training for the abusers. What are your thoughts on some of these ideas? So first of all, I have a problem with all euphemistic descriptions of violence against women, sex trafficking, child pornography, domestic violence. These are all terms that I think water down what is basically rape and murder. And, you know, you don't get what's been referred to as a domestic violence discount. In other words, if you're married to or you grow your own victim, meaning like a child, you should be treated and your crime should be treated as just as serious as if you were committing this act against a stranger. So unless uh, courts would expect a woman who was, you know, or a man who was beaten up by a stranger in the middle of the street to sit down and have therapy with their attacker, they should not have that expectation of women who have been abused by men. And this is a terrible idea. I think it shows an utter lack of understanding about the dynamics of domestic violence. Often we talk just about the physical abuse, but domestic violence is almost always preceded by and concurrently, you know, as physical domestic violence concurrently occurs with emotional abuse, psychological abuse, coercive control. And I just think it's a terrible idea. I was really shocked when I saw the book about, you know, decriminalizing domestic violence. If we would not decriminalize any other crime that would be committed among strangers, then, you know, we should not ask women to to forfeit their rights in this country as taxpayers. How how do you respond if they're not asking the survivors to make these changes, but they're saying they're responding to survivors who've been asking for these changes for decades? Well, I think that it would be kind of like taking a child's word for it when say say you have like a situation with child marriage. And the bride is 12 years old, but she says, but I really love him and I want to be married to him and he's 45. Um, You know, and I don't, I think that domestic abuse survivors already are sort of infantilized, you know, in the relationship and and not given power and um, not able to exercise autonomy. So I do see where, allowing survivors to make their own decisions and to build up their confidence um, is an important thing. But I also think that, you know, it's not something that should become policy for sure. Well, I just want to add that in these spaces where these ideas come up, I repeatedly use the public health analogy around you know, knowing that we have decades of research on how domestic violence impacts both the survivor and the children health-wise and you know, physiologically, et cetera. I use the analogy of 
a smoker who's just had a stroke or a heart attack going to a doctor and having the doctor say, okay, well, if you want to continue smoking, go ahead. You know, let me tell you which yeah. brand is my favorite. Um, when, yeah, yeah. And so if we know that smoking isn't good, I think there's a responsibility that the um, provider needs to adhere to with regard to public health, not just the individual's health, the patient's health. And, and giving them the information that can help, you know, steer them along the path, you know, eventually that will get them to safety, maybe not immediately, but that um, that should be the goal. And that seems to be not happening in New York City. Yes, it seems like those resources would be better used uh, to, to provide counseling for those women themselves and to, to help them develop the self-esteem and the, you know, the insight to come to those conclusions themselves that these relationships are not healthy and that they are detrimental to their, not only their emotional and psychological health, but to their physical health. A lot of women with histories of being abused have traumatic brain injuries that have gone undiagnosed. And, you know, certainly I think it's, it's a massive public health problem not only, you know, the, the actual injuries that domestic violence abuse uh, survivors suffer, but the unidentified sort of things like how many women are committing suicide, how many women are receiving depression diagnoses and anxiety diagnoses, and how many have uh, cardiovascular disease and, you know, other diseases that are certainly byproducts of stress along with other factors. So there's a lot of, I think if we could, if we could quantify the actual fiscal costs and the human cost that domestic violence causes in the country, we would be, it would be staggering. I think there's a lot that's not identified. Well, that, that brings me to uh, a conversation I had with a former guest, you know, mutual friend, um, Kathleen Russell, the executive director of the Center for Judicial Excellence. As yes. you know, she has spoken about both media literacy and her organization also manages a child murder map in the U.S., yes. um, which is very complementary to your Women Count USA database. Have you considered combining the work that you both do and then adding the elements that you said, which includes suicide, either suicide attempts or successful suicides by both children and the survivors. And then to make it more complete, the physiological impacts where someone might perhaps die from a chronic ailment such as a heart attack or substance abuse that is a direct result of having been a victim of being abused? Yeah, there are several places where our work overlaps. And we, we've actually had a conversation about trying to either provide each other with some of the data that we have. Um, and I know I kind of routinely send her stories that I think meet her criteria, even though ours is a little bit different. And I have thought about how you could effectively, you know, quantify all of these other health issues and, you know, suicide attempts and all those kind of things or completed suicides. I just think it would be so difficult because there are so many barriers to even discovering that information. For instance, therapy records obviously are protected, you know, under HIPAA. A lot of health records are protected under HIPAA you may have a delayed response. So 
you can have somebody who's been very resilient in the relationship and then, you know, just their reserves kind of run out and maybe they've been out of the relationship for a couple of years and then, you know, maybe they thought things would improve and they're still struggling in their life and then they have a suicide attempt. And it's not, you know, maybe very clear that it's directly related to the abuse that they suffered, but it really is much like, you know, PTSD is for people who've been in the military and, and, you know, PTSD is a huge issue for survivors of trauma, including domestic violence as well. So I think it would be extremely difficult to quantify, you know, and a lot of times suicide is not reported in the news. All the information that I get for my database, I get because a journalist cared enough or felt like a story was important enough to write about. So most of the information I get is not freedom of information requests from police departments and those kind of things. It would be extremely difficult to do that because there are thousands of police departments in the United States. So um, my everything that I've read about suicide is often it is not reported or the cause of death is not stated as suicide, never mind that she committed suicide because she was abused for 15 years. So it would be extremely difficult to, I think, get that data. I wish that we could, but I see so many roadblocks to trying to to find out the answer to that question. Have you considered, you know, I understand this is actually a project that you've taken on on your own in addition to your full-time job as a nurse, right? (laughs) So actually, first of all, how... How do you manage to have time to do both? It seems like this could be a full-time job and it certainly even require more than one person working on it. Yeah. It is more than a full-time job for one person. And there have been weeks where I've spent up to 40 hours a week doing this work, you know, where I've been off my regular job or, you know, I, it's funny that you say that because I was just in line somewhere and I had to wait for a minute and I was on my phone and I was in my Google email where I had a case that was emailed to me and I was reading it over and putting it in a folder to add to my spreadsheet later. So I do, you know, I'm doing this work constantly. I am, um, you know, if I'm not at my computer working on it while I'm watching a movie with my husband, you know, and kind of half paying attention or I'm in my office working on it, then I've got my phone and I'm, you know, going through Google alerts, which is a primary way that I get a lot of uh, information And what I do really couldn't have been done before Google, which is very interesting. You know, they do have some problematic issues, but it's just something that you couldn't have done before. You would have to go to individual libraries and look up newspaper articles. So now that we have search engines and those sort of advances in technology, this is a new thing that can be done to try to create, you know, what I would call maybe citizen data sets. I saw a need or I saw an unanswered question and I'm just a nurse, you know, and I don't have any access to specialized data. I don't have access to uh, law enforcement databases. This is just what I found through a determined but cursory glance at the information that was available about how many women and girls were being murdered by men and boys in the United States every year. So, I can only imagine what could be accomplished with more access to information and those sort of things. 
What are your plans for Women Count USA? So I am very interested in really creating a lifelong project. I would like to not only continue to document the women who are currently being affected by femicide in the United States, but I envision going backwards to at least 1950 and documenting as many women as I can find. I've actually already started that work about a year and a half ago. I have multiple folders in my um, email account and I've started separate spreadsheets uh, going all the way back to the 1950s. So sometimes when I'm doing this work, I will be looking at a news article and I will come across sort of a curated view of other articles that I might be interested in. And it might be, you know, that a husband was arrested and uh, convicted for murdering his wife back in 1984, let's say. So I will take that article and I will put it in a folder for, for the 1980s. And that's eventually going to go, go on to a spreadsheet. I'm haunted by questions like how many men have killed women in modern history, you know? And I think the answer would be stunning and really shocking. I know that I've easily found 1,650 women. I have hundreds more to add for 2018. Those are just the ones I have on my, on my database so far. I still have hundreds and hundreds of Google alerts to go through from 2018. And I envision it remaining and being a sort of a public database that if you are a criminal justice professor and you want to go on and use some of the information, uh, you have access to it for teaching and for your classroom. And that has happened. I've had uh, professors reach out to me in sociology and criminal justice. If you, for instance, teach on uh, law enforcement officers on how to recognize the signs and symptoms of strangulation, like Kelsey McKay does. She's a former prosecutor from Austin who that is now her life's work. And I was able to create a spreadsheet for her of all the women that I had found in 2018 who had either been strangled to death or strangled along with another cause of death or who had a history of being strangled in the past which we know is a high-risk indicator of being murdered by the man in the future. So there are so many different facets of academia and law enforcement who could use this information to either enhance teaching or to, you know, eventually I'd like to take this to even politicians to help enforce good laws we already have in place and enact better laws to help protect women. I think when you see these statistics and they're just numbers, it's really hard to to really care about it. But when you're scrolling through my spreadsheet and you see just hundreds and hundreds of women and their faces and their stories, it, it brings it home that this is happening to real people and um, we need to do something about it. I, I like your idea about partnering uh, with universities and law enforcement. And I see so many possibilities with you also bringing this concept to the startup community and technologies, artificial intelligence being integrated into it to as a tool for predictive analysis. I think there's yeah. so many patterns that once you've collected all this data that you can uncover to show how we can you know, make tweaks into the existing system of how we respond 
that will hopefully save lives. And ultimately, isn't that the goal? Not just to memorialize, right? But to save lives and prevent deaths that, that we have control over. So what are some of the ways that we can help you achieve those goals? So I, I do have an email account set up women count USA at gmail.com. And I just ask anyone who um, cares about this issue. If you come across a story, a news story of a woman or a girl who has been murdered to email a news link to me. So I'm aware of it. Sometimes I already know about it and it's on my list, but sometimes I don't. And so that is extremely helpful. I, I have no doubt there are dozens that I am not aware of, um, either because it's just like a, you know, a small locality and, um, you know, maybe it's just a very small newspaper or it just hasn't come to my radar. So that is extremely helpful. I have had various people reach out to me with offers to help create a website. I talked to a student at Carnegie Mellon yesterday who's going to look at helping me with a website and perhaps even an easier way or a better way of collecting the data. I'm interested in looking at a way to safely crowdsource this information. So right now, because I have a Google spreadsheet, I can't just open it up for people to be able to add and edit because, you know, that could be a disaster. But there could be a way that I could have people upload the information that I collect themselves and then I could check through it and then add it to the database. So we're, you know, I'm kind of talking to her about what that would look like. And I'm even interested in, you know, people who have expertise in infographics and, you know, creating sort of a visual uh, picture of the data that I've collected. It's a lot of data. I collect information on, of course, the date that the murder happened, the woman's name, her age, her race. If she's an uh, indigenous woman, her, her particular tribe. I want a photo of every woman, and that's extremely important to me. The city, the state, her relationship to the perpetrator, his name and age, how she was killed and whether or not there was a prior history of domestic violence, a prior history of strangulation, whether or not it was a murder-suicide, which we're seeing an increase of, and if he was a law enforcement officer or in the military. You know, we've got a big problem with law enforcement officers who are the people we're supposed to be able to go to when we're sexually assaulted, when we are victims of domestic violence, being perpetrators themselves. That's very problematic, and I think it might might have something to do with the poor response to these victims. And then I also collect information about what I call corrective femicide, whether or not there was crime scene staging. Um, That is a frequent dynamic in murder scenes of domestic violence and femicide, meaning that either evidence is added or taken away to make it appear to be like a suicide or to clean up evidence you know, often there's deception involved. And I also am documenting what I kind of call the great guy narrative. And that is just sort of a snarky little term that I came up with to describe uh, when journalists report about these murders frequently, there's a, an interview with a neighbor and they're like, wow, you know, I never heard him arguing and he helped me fix my bike and his barbecue is the best. And and that helps reinforce the idea that these guys are must have just snapped when we know that domestic violence is often 
uh, committed in secret. And these guys do have a lot more control over their behavior than um, we give them credit for because their wife or girlfriend is their identified victim. They're not going to walk up to the neighbor and punch him in the face. They're going to do that in private to their wife or girlfriend. So this guy may be very nice to you, but that doesn't mean he didn't perpetrate domestic terrorism on his partner for years. And then I'd like to put a little bit of information about the woman, you know, about something special about, you know, she loved crocheting and she had five cats and and she was, had a beautiful smile or just something special about each woman uh, to remember that not only are they part of a sad statistic, but they are individual women who were loved and who mattered to their families, to their friends, to the children they often leave behind. And that this terrible scourge not only affected them and cut their life short, but it will forever affect the people who love them that are left behind. Mm. Have you connected with advocacy organizations in the U.S. similar to the one in England called Level Up that has recently been successful at getting guidelines passed that instruct journalists how to report on domestic violence in a more sensitive, safe, and responsible way? I I have not, but that would be something I would be extremely interested in. I can't imagine that we do not have some advocacy groups that are that are working on that piece, but that is part of what I do is to challenge media narratives of domestic violence and murdered women. I have constantly taken note and posted often about different uh, news headlines or verbiage that I've seen written in the reports of women's murder specifically that are just, um, they're just not acceptable, not in today's day and age and not with what we know. Uh, I remember writing to, I think, like Ed Lavenderia, if I'm saying it correctly, at CNN. Early on when I was doing this work, he reported on a case where uh, I think the guy had gone and he was mad, angry with the mother-in-law. And I think he killed the mother-in-law, but he killed like several other people. And a sheriff or someone actually said, well, he just could have taken care of the mother-in-law. And I thought, oh, my God. (laughs) You know, and I I wrote to Ed and I was like, how could you report this with no analysis, you know? So there, there is a lot of work that needs to be done because the people who are reading these reports of women's murders often don't have specialized knowledge about the dynamics of domestic violence. These are people who are going to serve on juries. Their attitudes and opinions are being shaped by journalists. And I've often told journalists that really... I can't think of another job that has the ability to really transform our understanding and our attitudes towards violence against women than they do. And I would like to see us do better. I think there are some journalists who are doing a great job, but uh, we certainly can do better. Yeah. I mean, I I actually haven't found an advocacy organization within the U.S. other than Kathleen Center for Judicial Excellence, but they're not really focused on that, right? But I have found obviously Level Up in in the U.K. and there's one called Equal Press in Canada Mm -hmm. that are specifically focused on promoting gender equality in news media and best practices you know, of reporting of gender-based violence. But I think this is an area that I think speaks to the lack of such an organization and entity speaks to 
how media in this country reports in general on on uh, news and and the um, proclivities they have towards false equivalences. Yeah, and I think this is something that it is something that I do want to to somehow put together and and to do. And I've thought about not reinventing the wheel and reaching out to level up, but I'm in the unique position of having read thousands and thousands of articles of, you know, the reporting of domestic violence and women's murders. And I've written many, many posts uh, calling it out. I've written to district attorneys. I've written to, to journalists, to sheriffs, to police chiefs. So I've done a lot of this work already. I just think it would be great to get together with some journalists who are interested in this subject because they know their industry, you know, in a way that I don't and I don't understand. And I think it would be great to partner with some journalists who do recognize that there need to be some standards and some some expectations for reporting of this subject. So maybe, you know, somebody could reach out to me. Sounds great. You've been very open about being a survivor yourself. How has your experience as a survivor informed your work on Women Count USA? So, yeah, I've been a a domestic violence survivor and also I'm a sexual assault survivor. So I've experienced those issues from the inside. And I think that while it's not vital that you have personal experience with these issues to understand them and to help others who um, are going through these these problems, you know, it does help you to understand things like, you know, why does it take women so many times to leave? You know, I have a unique understanding of how insidious domestic violence is. I mean, men or women who, you know, and women can be abusive too. They don't typically just wake up in the morning and just punch someone in the face or call them the C word or whatever. It is a, a, a just a very subtle undermining of your self-esteem. Typically, that's how it starts off. And, and really, like the gaslighting where, you, you know, you're told you didn't hear what you thought you heard and you just said something that you know you didn't say. And so it's very interesting to me, having had this experience, when I read about things like coercive control or, you know, books about the sort of tactics that perpetrators use, they really do seem to all read the same playbook. You know, there are variations, but it, it's, it cuts across socioeconomic status. It cuts across educational levels. It even cuts across cultural identities where men seem to kind of do the same things to women, no matter where they are or, uh, you know, how rich or, or educated they are or aren't. It's, it's very interesting to me, but it, it does start off very subtly. And it's, it's almost like you're in it before you really know what's going on. And it makes you question your sanity in a way, you know, you, you're with somebody who tells you that they love you and, you know, you're maybe married to this person and, and it's very decent stabilizing when someone who says that they love you and is supposed to care for you starts using these tactics on you. You don't want to believe that it's true. You maybe, you know, believe that it's your fault. And if only you change, you know, but for me, you know, I went to counseling and, and finally a counselor said, 
Dawn, you're being emotionally abused. You know, this is not normal and you're being abused. So, and I'm, I consider myself a fairly intelligent woman and, and I'm, I consider myself emotionally stable and mentally stable. And it really took somebody naming it for me, for me to really understand that that was what was happening to me. And it almost always escalates. It doesn't always involve physical force or physical violence. A lot of times abusers only use the force that's necessary. And if a stern look or if, um, you know, uh, other tactics kind of keep you in line, then they don't escalate to physical violence. One very eye-opening thing that I did not know that I learned when I went to the conference on crimes against women in Dallas a couple of weeks ago was that the greatest predictor of whether or not a man is going to murder you is not that he uses physical violence against you. It's that he uses coercive control against you. And I thought that was very eye-opening. So the kind of things that we dismiss as not real abuse or not real violence, meaning everything that's not physical violence, all of those things are very ominous predictors of escalation and of very serious violence that could potentially happen down the road. So you've made a a great justification for criminalizing coercive control in this country. Oh, yeah, I'm all for that. (laughs) Okay. We're way behind Britain. We need to cut that. Yeah, I agree. So for many survivors of intimate partner violence, trust is a big issue that they struggle with. Trust perhaps of people who may trigger their abuse within the system, individuals that have failed them, and perhaps even trust in humankind in general. Mm -hmm. I know you are now happily remarried. How did you navigate this path of coming to be both open to connecting with another human being in mutual trust and being open to giving and receiving love, given your personal experience? Despite everything that I've seen, I, I've always had this resilience and this, this idea that I've held on to that the world is a good place and that there are good people who care and that there are good men out there and there are a lot of good men out there. I want them to get more involved in speaking out on this issue. Only 8% of the people who follow my page are men. I want men to not feel like they have to be uh, on guard or offended when women talk about male violence against women. So I think that knowing that there are good people out there who do care, who are emotionally healthy, know how to uh, have disagreements without just totally trying to decimate their partner, knowing that you have gone through something that many other people have experienced and you can take that experience and help it make you stronger, help it hone your skills in finding a good partner. And, you know, I think it's really important to kind of look at yourself and think, is there anything that, that I could have done differently? And by that, I don't mean blaming the victim at all. I mean, like in my own case, I saw that, I was being tested. I didn't realize that at the time. But for instance, you know, the first time a man calls you the B word or is, you know, significantly abusive. If, if you do not 
meet that with a very strong, that will not ever happen again. If it does, I'm out of here and you follow through. So they know that you mean it. Um, you know, I, I understood for me that he was testing my boundaries repeatedly. And when he saw that, okay, this didn't make her leave. I'm going to try this. This didn't make her leave. I'm going to try this. So I think that in the end, it really helped me to trust my gut, trust my instincts, um, know if something feels off that it probably is. I've become a completely different woman than I was when I think about the woman who really tolerated that behavior, you know, and also I was very trapped. So I don't mean to, to minimize, you know, that I could have just walked out the door any day. I mean, I went to domestic violence experts when I was ready to finally leave. And I was told that I was at high risk of being murdered. So I don't at all take the fact that leaving is a very, very difficult and very serious and potentially very dangerous decision to make. But I do feel like all of those experiences helped me to be able to meet someone new to be open to trusting again, knowing that I trusted myself and my own judgment. And that if I saw any signs of abuse that I was going to be walking out the door. In fact, when I first met Mike and he is a wonderful man, he, it just kind of was moving a little too fast and he's a, a musician and a chef. So he wrote me this beautiful song. I think it was like on our second or third date. And I was like, Oh gosh, it's a red flag, you know, <laughs> no, just thinking that, you know, cause sometimes men who are abusive, they just really latch on very quickly. They want to marry very quickly. You know, they want to kind of lock you down very quickly. And you know what? It wasn't any of that. It was that he just thought I was something special and he, wrote me a song, you know, he felt moved to write me a song. And so I ended up breaking up with him and he got a hold of me and he goes, he said, Dawn, he said, you know what, even if you don't want to date me, I just like you so much. I would just like to be your friend. And I really mean that. I mean, I would just like to just be friends, you know, if if you're not ready for a relationship. And so I gave him another chance and it ended up that, you know, he's, he's an amazing, wonderful, supportive, man who tolerates me, (laughs) my rants. (laughs) And, and this work, you know, it's not easy to be the partner of someone who has taken on this very sometimes dark and often very sad work. I'm a very happy person. We have a happy life. We do a lot of laughing and I'm very blessed, I think, to be able to to stay emotionally healthy while doing this very emotionally exhausting work. And I just try to recharge my batteries and do things that bring me joy um, and know that the work matters so much that, that I can keep trucking along and doing this. Wow. Thank you, Dawn, for sharing that inspiring story. I hope it gives many of our survivors who are listening the hope to be open in the same way that you have as well. So we've come to the point of our conversation where I ask every guest a series of questions that I've adapted from the Inside the Actor Studio questionnaire called the Engendered Questionnaire. Oh. First, quest- first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Wow. 
Well, what is at stake is the basic humanity and human rights of half of of the world. I I look at this as really a human human rights issue first and foremost. There are so many ways that women have to navigate their lives on a daily basis in a certain way to stay safe from male violence, and that's just not acceptable to me. I've often said, you know, we know that, like, tigers are dangerous. So if we go into the jungle and, you know, we're walking along and I see a flash of orange and white and black, I'm going to be out of there, you know. Oh, my gosh, there's a tiger. But women are forced to navigate a society where the men that would hurt them don't have orange and black stripes, you know. And this exhausting work of trying to figure out which men are safe needs to stop. It is robbing women of their God-given or however you want to put it right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, I often talk about that in a very cynical way. Women don't have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. When we can't walk in a, a nature preserve and jog in a nature preserve with, without being raped and murdered like Megan Getram was in 2017 in Plano where I live. And we can't just be in our own homes without the threat of violence in our own homes by the people who are supposed to care about us and love us. And, you know, I've got a little kind of meme on my Facebook page that says that there's something very wrong with the fact that for most women, the most dangerous decision they will ever make is their choice of husband or boyfriend. That is crazy. And I, I see that with just like open eyes and I, I want to shake people around me and say, you know, this can't be, there's something really wrong with this and it needs to change. What gives you hope? What gives me hope is wise, wondrous women who use their voices and who are challenging the expectations of what it means to be a woman, what it means to, to live in a world where we are subjected to violence and discrimination simply because we're women. These women, especially that are coming up, who are young, who are outspoken and are not going to accept anything less than things like being treated with dignity and respect at work, being free from sexual harassment, being paid for for their work equally to men, having reproductive choice and freedom, being uh, included and represented in politics and and, in places of power and as CEOs and corporations and who aren't going to accept anything less, they give me hope. And the older women like me who just have had it and you know they're just like you know their kids are grown and they've got this renewed energy and you know they understand they've got a limited time and they want to make a difference before they leave this earth and make it a better place for their daughters and for all the women who come behind us I'm 55 and when I think about what it was like even when I was a little girl when I was in uh in grade school there was a, a little book 
that, you know, you could put all your best friends for each grade and, and your pictures. And it had a place where it said, what would you like to be when you grow up? And it had a boy column and a girl column. And the boys could be astronauts and doc- doctors and president. And girls could be nurses and secretaries and homemakers. And and those are, are great things for women to be able to be if those are their choices. And so I just... Um, I bow in absolute awe to the many women that I see who every day who inspire me and who lift up other women and understand that if we are going to make this world a better place for ourselves, that we need to, you know, not be infighting and not be competing with each other and cutting each other down, but lifting each other up and supporting each other. Women have so much more power than they realize, and we need to start tapping into that power. And final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence? More believing victims, less blaming victims, and we need to start, for crying out loud, doing some serious prosecuting of violence against women, including sexual assault. It is not acceptable that we have the abysmal rates of rapists going to prison that we do. We know that uh, women um, are being completely failed by law enforcement. And I think a lot of it needs to start with law enforcement because they're the gatekeepers. If you have a police officer who doesn't believe that you are a victim of sexual assault or domestic violence, They have a way of wording their report. They have a way of not sending it on to uh, maybe, you know, or putting a bug in the ear of the detective that, you know, that they don't believe that you're truthful or dismissing your claims. And then that case is never sent to a grand jury and to a prosecutor. And so we need to start taking uh, violence against women as a serious criminal behavior with consequences. I see repeated cases where women are even killed by men who who raped several women in the past. And Megan Getram is, is one example, and Molly Matheson is another. The same man killed both of those women, and he had sexually assaulted multiple women in the past and suffered no consequences. We need to stop being apathetic about this subject. We need to start caring I would love to see women crowdsource and support each other. I mean, for instance, with the work that I do, I would love to be able to do this full time. And, you know, if I could find 60,000 women who could give me a dollar a year, that would be my salary that I'm, you know, stuff like that, you know, where, where we, we have to stop relying on the men who are in power to do the work that needs to be done to eradicate this. This is a men's problem, like male violence is committed by men. It's their problem to solve. But until they step up, you know, we can do some of this work ourselves. And so I hope that working together, you know, even if we're being failed by all the institutions that we're paying taxes for, that if we can, as citizens even, do some of this work, that we can make a difference. Thank you so much, Dawn, for your time today. I wish you the best of luck with growing Women Count USA and getting the support and resources that you need to keep it going. 
Thank you so much, Terry. I've enjoyed my time with you and I appreciate you shining a light on not just my work, but on the work of many incredible women. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Mm-hmm.